happened. That was um, truly a great time. Um, I have uh, no real good transition between uh, what we just saw and what I'm going to talk about today. So we're just going to like push right through if that's cool with you guys. Um, I'll tell you, uh, we, we are beginning a series on idols today. You, you see that behind me and it's like kind of looming like this, this giant thing like it's got eyes. It's looking at me right here. Like it's, uh, but uh, let me ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on idolatry? We don't, we don't tend to, like, I mean, it's probably been a while. Like, we don't tend to be like, yeah, let's talk about, you know, idolatry. You know, it, you know it's, it's not really the kind of thing that you talk about around the pool. Uh, so tell me, uh, what is your go-to idol? Um, something like that. But, you know, it's probably been a while for most of us. We just don't talk about idols. We don't. Uh, we don't, you know, think that we have a need to talk about idols. I, I don't think there's any of us, you know, maybe bowing down and worshiping any statues. We kind of leave that to uh, other religions, you know, uh, you know, definitely, you know, the, I think the, the Buddhists, the Hindus, and maybe other cultures have a, have a real, uh, you know, line on that one. Um, but, you know, I, I assure you, idols are very much alive and well in our towns in our homes, uh, yes, even in our lives. That may come as a shock to you. You may be like, oh, Ben, why didn't you tell us about this earlier? Why haven't we talked about this? Well, one reason is it's, it's a little abstract. It, uh, it's not as overt or clear-cut. Do this, don't do that. The Christian life is, is uh, you know, sometimes broken down into these, these things that we can understand and these things that we can do or not do, and, and suddenly this is not exactly as clear-cut. But I would probably say the biggest reason for not talking about idols, for not talking about idolatry, is that it's personal. It's personal. It's different for every person, and for every person, it's uncomfortable. For every person, it's uncomfortable. See, it's personal. It's deep-seated. It sometimes is so uh, ingrained in us that we don't even know it's there. Oz Guinness uh, says this. He says, idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. See, idolatry is like cancer. We cannot talk about it. Sure, we cannot let it leave our tongues, that thing which should not be mentioned. But if not dealt with, it has the power to kill. If not talked about, it will slowly eat away at our hearts. And it will slowly destroy. So idolatry is deadly. And we're going to talk about it today. But before we go any further, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for that awesome time of worship. We thank you for, for Josh and, and our worship team leading us. And God, I pray that you would lead us to your word today, that we might be changed. God, I pray that you would speak to us 
to each of our hearts. God, that we might be known as yours and yours alone. God, I pray that my words would be your words. May they be pleasing to your ear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we said earlier, we're beginning this new series on idols, and uh, this subject is so big, it's so broad, you know, that we're going to try and be as thorough as we can in the time that we have, but as with most things in the Christian life, you know, no, no actual uh, idea stands on its own, no, no thoughts are, 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 quote, new, right? The ideas I'm presenting to you today are not necessarily new things. Um, you know, certainly um, other scholars, other theologians, other pastors have laid this groundwork, and so we know that there's nothing new under the sun, all right? So if you want further reading on this topic, uh, I want to direct you to two books, two books here, okay? The first one is called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller, and the second one is called Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman, okay? So check those out. Um, if, you, if you didn't get those, you didn't write them down or whatever, you know, come talk to me afterwards, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you get those names. But let's dive in. So when we say idols, when we say idols, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about anything, anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that's more important to you than God. This would be anything that absorbs your heart, captures your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. Anything that you go to the well to drink deeply of that isn't labeled our Lord, our God, our King is an idol. And so, literally, it could be anything, but what is it that you and I, what is it that we value more than God? See, most of the time, an idol is a good thing. It's a good thing that has been turned into something very different. Something that started off maybe as a practice, a hobby, uh, something to do becomes a driving force. Something that began as this really good thing becomes the end all, be all. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it overrides all other values and thus becomes an idol. The problem is that we don't often recognize it when it happens. I mean, is it so wrong to want others to think well of us? Is it, is it wrong to want to be excellent at what I do? I mean, what's so wrong with having a career, making money, you know, having other people look positively at you, achieving goals? What's wrong with having brains or beauty or, or a great political cause or comfortable circumstances? What's so wrong with that? I mean, could... Could family or children or, or even Christian ministry be a problem? Yes. Yes. If those things become more central to our lives than God, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And so if you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, the second book of the Bible there, just right inside the, uh, the cover. And so we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. As always, if you have the Version Bible app, you can go there, go to the events tab, and you will find all of our notes and scripture right there uh, for you. But we're going to go to Exodus 20. We're going to start in verse 1. And here's what it says. Here's what it says. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, at this point, Moses and the Hebrew people are about three months into what I'm sure seems like the never-ending camping trip. He, God has led them uh, through Moses, led them out of Egypt, out from under Pharaoh's hand, and they are headed to the promised land. And now, three months into it, God is giving them these commands. God is giving them these commands, these rules to live by. He reminds them where they came from and how they got there. He's like, I'm the Lord your God who brought you here. You know, I'm the guy who freed you from slavery. And so he rescues them, and now he's going to give them uh, some, some, some rules, some commandments on how they ought to live. Let me tell you, now that you are free, here is how you ought to live. These things, the, the Ten Commandments as we know them, you know, would be critical to them experiencing the life that God has for them. Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he says this. He, he said that the rest of the commands can only be broken if you break one of the first two. The first two deal with idolatry, and so it's on those two commandments that all the rest hang. So let's look at them again. The first commandment that God gives the people of Israel says, you shall have no other gods before me. See, God isn't saying, it's okay to have other gods as long as you put me first. I think that's a common misconception that we're like, yeah, it's okay to have other gods as long as this God is first. God is saying that you and I are to have no other gods in his sight. So when he says before me, it's really probably more like have no other gods in my presence. I don't even want to see them. God's like, don't even think about putting another God in front of my face. Get that out of here. And so that's what he says in the first commandment. The second commandment God gives the people of Israel, he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything of heaven above, earth beneath, waters below, right? You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the, chil punishing the uh, children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we are not supposed to have gods, we're not supposed to have gods. We have a God. We have a God. And so he tells us here, he says, don't have any other gods and don't even think about having any idols either. 
See, these two things are so closely related. The first is basically like, hey, don't worship any other gods. And the second was like, hey, don't make anything that you can worship. See, the second one forbids us to create anything that we see, to, to worship anything with our eyes, um, thus making it into a god. And so it's like God is like saying, man, like I know that there are currently uh, other things that people worship. Don't do that and don't create new things for which you can worship. I mean, think about this. Why would God even have to say that? Why would God say that? I mean, he's the one who rescued them from Egypt. I mean, they would still be slaves if it weren't for God. They would be dying back in Egypt. Why does God even have to say that? Because God knows that they were created to worship. See, we were made to worship. We were made to worship. We are born worshipers. Our God made us to worship. Our creator made us to glorify him, to be in relationship with him. And we are made out of his goodness and for his own good pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't given good things, right? Uh, That doesn't mean that God doesn't like to see us smile. Our father loves to give his children good gifts, all right? He wants us to find joy and find it in him. And so, you know, we are uniquely and wonderfully made to worship the creator and not anything else. And not anything else. Not created things, not created beings, not the creation, the creator. We were made to worship God, but then sin comes along and corrupts everything. Sin comes and corrupts everything. You know, in the world, everything in it, every inch of the universe is touched by sin. And so we, we don't just stop worshiping God. No, no, no. It is ingrained in us. That's what we do. We continue to worship. What does it look like? Well, our worship becomes misdirected. See, that's what sin does. Sin takes things that were initially good and corrupts it. Sin takes things that are initially good and corrupts it. We understand that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. And so sin finds that good gift and makes it bad, that perfect gift, and makes it imperfect. Worship was good. It was given by God, and it was perfect. And sin wrecks our worship by misdirecting where we are, who we are worshiping. It is misdirected. See, when I was in seminary, I was in a worship class, and and this worship class uh, covered all kinds of church music, right? It covered uh, uh, hymns, uh, worship songs, you name it. And one day, the professor had us watch a news piece that was uh, done by a major news outlet on worship around the world. Okay, And we saw what it looked like for, for Buddhists and Hindus and, and even lesser-known tribes to, to sing to their various gods. And after the video was over, the professor asked the class one simple question. Is this worship? Is this worship? I immediately blurt out, no. <laughs> no, it's not. Professor says, why not? Because, because to the one true God, it's no different than clanging pots and pans. How is that worship? That's not worship. It's clanging pots and pans. The professor said, you're right. But it's still worship. 
It's just misplaced. They're directing it to the wrong God. I learned a valuable lesson that day. See, everyone worships. Everyone worships. You know, maybe there's an atheist who will be like, I don't worship. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Everyone does. We can't stop worshiping any more than we can stop breathing. Okay? It is what we do. It is what we were made to do. And the question isn't whether or not someone worships. The question becomes who or what is being worshipped. Philosopher Peter Krefeld says, the opposite of theism is not atheism, it's idolatry. Everyone is going to worship a God, so what is your God called? Everyone is going to worship someone or something. What, who or what is the God in our lives? And so God begins by telling the Israelites that they will have no other gods in his presence. To say it another way, he's like, listen, if you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, then we can't bring any others into this relationship, okay? We can't, we can't have you bringing other people, you know, other gods into my presence. Listen, if you're going to have other gods, then you can't be in my presence. If you're going to have other gods, you can't be in my presence. See, we don't get to have it both ways, we don't get to worship both a living God and a non-living God at the same time. We can't, we can't have faith in the real God and a fake God at the same time. See, idolatry is an affront to God because it is offensive. It is rebellious. It is sinful. It's all of those things because it is worshiping someone or something other than God. Kyle Eidelman says this. He says, when you subtract the religious language, worship is a built-in human reflex to put your hope in something or someone and then chase after it. You hold something up and then you give your life pursuing it. You hold something up and then you give your life pursuing it. See, it matters so much to God it matters because if you are chasing after this thing, then you cannot possibly be chasing after the, the one true God. God is displaced in our lives by some cheap imitation, and it matters to him who his children worship, right? He, he does not want to be substituted for something that can never satisfy there isn't anything greater, anything better out there than him. And so the more that we pursue this thing, the more that we are driven to it, the more that we seek to attain it, the further and further we are driven away from God. See, we are all worshipers, and our God doesn't share. Our God doesn't share Look again at verses 4 and 5. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Later, Exodus 34, he says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. I mean, think about all the names used in Scripture. 
Think about all the names, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, deliverer, provider, healer, redeemer. Yet here, God's name is jealous. His name is jealous. Why? Because he wants your heart. He wants my heart. He wants your heart. And doesn't he deserve it? Doesn't he deserve it? I mean, think of all that God has done for the Hebrew people, right? They were in slavery in Egypt, and God sends Moses. God hears their cries. He saves them. You know, they are led out from there. They are led through the Red Sea, not over the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, out of harm's way from Pharaoh's army that was in pursuit. He nurtures them in the wilderness. He gives them manna daily, bread from heaven. He provides quail. He satisfies them with fresh water when they are thirsty. He has nurtured them, provided them, sustained them, and he should have their hearts, right? God says through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Do you hear what he is saying? He found us in a mess. We were dirty, disgusting, gross. There's no good in us. And he picks us up out of the mud, out of the mire, and he washes us off. It says he sprinkles clean water on us and we are cleansed. We are cleansed, we are cleaned, and he removes our heart of stone. We were dead, it wasn't beating, all right? He removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that would beat only for him, a heart that would beat only for God. And it's the perfect love story, is it not? The greatest love story of all time ever written that our king would come and die for you and for me, that we would be with him. I mean, I've read, I've read stories before. I've seen a lot of movies. This is the greatest love story of all time. There, our hearts leap out of our chests when we see it, but this one is better. This one is better. So what comes next? beloved is unfaithful. The beloved is unfaithful. The beloved runs after another and another and another and another. And God is the betrayed lover. The one who did all that. And that's the truth of Scripture. (laughs) He was to be the love of our lives. We were to be his bride. We were to be his bride. And we were not to have an open marriage. We cheated. 
God isn't happy to be one of many gods. He wants to be the only one. But see, here is the truly great part. This, this is what sets this story apart from all others, okay? He may be jealous, but our God is just as passionate in his pursuit of his love, his pursuit of his beloved, as he is in his faithfulness. He is just as passionate. He doesn't just let us run off with some other, some other lover. He doesn't, he doesn't just let us say, yeah, I don't care. You know, no, he relentlessly pursues. He relentlessly pursues. Can't you just hear it? He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I'm a tree. Bending beneath the weight, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. See, he is pursuing you, and he is pursuing me, even when we aren't pursuing him. The hound of heaven, the hound of heaven is seeking our wandering, adulterous hearts, and not just a piece of our hearts, the whole thing. He wants all of us. He wants all of you and all of me. Let's face it. Our hearts are being tugged in a million different directions. Our hearts are being tugged in a million different directions. I mean, it's different for every person, but like I said earlier, an idol can be anything. John Calvin says that our hearts, they're like idol factories. They're idol factories. We are constantly creating new idols. We are so good with going with the flow that our hearts can change direction daily. It's almost like our hearts go, well, what idol are we going to follow today? What idol are we going to worship today? Our hearts can be so fickle sometimes. And so each day we face temptations, choices that will either lead us before the throne of God or away from it. Choices and temptations that will bring us to, to bow down before the one true God or to run after something else. And so we must make a choice today. Who will I serve today? We must choose today whom we will serve. Choose today. See, after Moses died, Joshua led the Israelites. And he led them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when you get to chapter 24 of the book of Joshua, you see that he's been leading them for quite some time. He's an old man. Joshua is about 110. And so he calls together all the tribes of Israel, including the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials, and delivers to them a message from God. God reminds them of all that he has done. He tells them about taking Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and giving him many descendants. God reminds them about what happened in Egypt, as well as their exodus from Egypt. He reminds them of what happened at Jericho and how they have been blessed as they have fought off all the people living in the land of Canaan. And after Joshua conveys the word of the Lord, he says this, beginning in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me 
and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is such a remarkable passage. Joshua lays out the options, and he gives them a choice. He gives them a choice. No longer will they be able to have one foot in and one foot out. No longer will their worship be divided. It's time to be all in, he says. If you indeed fear the Lord, then serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away those other gods. They're no good to you. Get rid of your idols. If the Lord God is who you put your faith and trust in, then Joshua is telling them there must be a clear break with the ways of worship, the deities worshipped by their ancestors long ago and their parents and grandparents back in Egypt. A choice must be made. If you don't want to serve the Lord, if you don't want to follow God, then declare today who your God is. Who will be your God? Joshua says, pick one. Pick one. Maybe it's the gods that your ancestors worshipped. Maybe. Maybe it's the gods that all the Egyptians worshipped when you were in there, when you were in slavery. Maybe it's the gods that the people are worshipping all around you in the land that you're now residing. But Joshua makes this declaration. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, everyone serves a God. Everyone worships. Who will you worship? Our options are different than those given that day, but we have options. We could serve gods, idols like power, achievement, materialism, control, Work, romance, approval, relationship, social status, image, family, racial or cultural identity, just to name a few. But everyone has a choice. The people of Israel heard Joshua's words and they said this. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of, out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua, knowing that they are worshipers, knowing that they were made to worship and knowing that sin has corrupted that, he pushes them on it. He questions them. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Because there's no turning back. It would be worse for them, it would be worse for us to start something that we don't finish. And Joshua kind of pushes them on it a little bit. You don't get to double dip. You don't get both gods. You get one God. One God. 
So Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And they replied, yes, yes, we are witnesses. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Throw away. Smash all your idols. Get rid of. The first step to ridding ourselves of idols is to make a declaration. We're going to talk more in this series about how we can rid ourselves of idols. But, but today, today, we are presented with a choice. Who will we serve today? Who will be your God? Will it be some cheap imitation that promises things but can't deliver? Will it be an unrelenting taskmaster that can never satisfy or will it be the King of kings and the Lord of lords? The one who pursues an undeserving, ungrateful people out of love. The one who would die in my place and in your place so that we could be with him. The choice is yours. But like Joshua, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. God, we remember. We remember all that you have done. The ways that you have been faithful to us. The ways that you have shown us your love, your power, your grace, your might. God, we, we confess, we admit to you, you already know, that our hearts, they're this battlefield, God. They're just raging every day, being tugged, being led astray. God, we want to follow you. We want to run after you. We want to pursue you. We want you to be our Lord and our God. We want to be known as yours, and God, we want that to be enough. God, I pray. I pray, God, that you would intervene, that you would absolutely show yourself to us, that our lives may be wrecked, our idols smashed, Things would be broken, even, God, if that means our hearts. God, we pray.
that we would worship you and you alone, that we would be satisfied in you and you alone. seek you and you alone. That we would be your people and you would be our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.